Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of the Appendix N Book Club with our brand new format where we'll be chatting about Charles R. Saunders Amaro. And with me today is that son of no father, Hoy. <laughs> uh, I would have thought I was the user of Imchawi, but uh, maybe I, I can be both. Exactly. Many things may exist for you on your on your road to destiny. Indeed. And um, speaking <laughs> of destiny, we've got with us today the game designer behind Dream Chaser, a game of destiny, and the game Rest in Pieces, as well as the creative director at Imagining Games, Please um, help me welcome Pete Petrusha. Yay! <laughs> Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for having me. Though, Hoy, I kind of want you to open your cloak now because I right. really need to know if it's for real. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> if I see a little tendril coming up, I'm going to be worried. You really don't want to see. All those squirmy bits. <laughs> yeah, the squirmy bits. <laughs> All right, Pete. So we love to ask that cliche RPG podcast question. How did you get into gaming? Okay, so Hoy, I can see you, so you kind of need to hold your hand up when I go too long, because we have a strict schedule. Um, (laughs) Really, uh, what I love talking about is that, like in fifth grade, I was at a hobby store called Hobby Town, and Hobby Town had like models and stuff, and my dad took me, he wasn't into any of those things, he just, it was next to Toys R Us or something, and we walked in, and they had three role-playing game books, and one of them was Shadowrun 2nd Edition, And I just found myself gawking at it, looking at like the elven woman with the mohawk and the guy who had the data jack stuck to his head, stuck into the ATM terminal, basically, prior to really ATM terminals. And I just was like, what is this? I'm 12 years old. You know, I'm just taken back by it. And uh, I begged my dad to buy it for me. And he, of course, opened it and was like, this is 300 pages. It's got thick vocabulary. It's black and white. There's no color pictures. It looks adult. Like, no. <laughs> it, it was a whopping $25, which at the time in, you know, early 90s was quite, you know, it was expensive for a book. It'd probably be like if it was 50 bucks now or something. So uh, as kids do, Every so often, I didn't forget. And I was like, dad, that book, dad, that book. And I got it for Christmas. But I wouldn't know what a role-playing game is for years. (laughs) I just would own a second edition copy and occasionally find books at other people's houses and stuff. Um, But in a study hall, like three years later, I would sit next to a kid who had a Riffs book reading the Denver campaign setting for Shadowrun because I I found another Shadowrun thing. I still didn't know what a role-playing game was. And he started talking to me like I knew role-playing games. So that kind of started a little bit of the kismet of role-playing games for me. I found a local game store and became a store rat, spent a lot of my high school days every day after school there. Magic the Gathering got me adjacent to gaming groups. And then we started playing everything that popped up on the shelves for years. So Amazing. And what is your history with science fiction and fantasy literature? Uh, largely, I would attribute that also to role-playing because, like I said, as a 12-year-old, um, I found role-playing games. So I found myself reading books that were like Dragonlance, uh, Greyhawk Adventures, stuff that was role-playing game related. And of course, stuff like you know Philip K. Dick, as later I realized, oh, there's fiction that kind of 
led to Shadowrun, <laughs> you know, so Neuromancer. And, uh, so, I mean, what was the initial appeal? If you hadn't really been doing any of this until you were 12, you know, what was the thing that said, wow, mind blown? I, I'm totally a video game kid. So, like, I loved my Final Fantasies. Um, but I was a super pretend kid. I was an only child. So, like, I was the kid who was always on the playground, like, getting everyone else to play, like, let's all be Power Rangers or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I'm Leonardo and you're so-and-so. And we're going to fight over here. I guess I was GMing the playground, you know, well before <laughs> I knew what role-playing games were. So, um, and then that Final Fantasy love, those, like, JRPGs led me to understand because really – the format is role-playing games, like statistics, leveling, you know, what role are you using in combination teamwork? So um, I was kind of bred for it almost by like adjacent hobbies. Mm. And then when I found it, it was just like a match. And then as an adult, I really looked back and what charmingly keeps me around or brought me back to it as an adult was that um, I remember all of the fundamental things that like it did for me, you know, like it gave me the greatest friends I ever had. It, it gave me something I was good at. I was like, as a game master, I had like creative energies that I was able to then put into stories and entertain people. And I didn't necessarily respect like what I was getting out of it at the time. But as an adult later, I can see how pivotal it was for me and how formulaic it was for my future and having jobs in management and stuff. Like I learned a lot of things about directing and working with people through role playing games. So. And then is there any fiction that you would recommend people read for inspiration for their gaming, regardless sure. of genre? So it's really funny because, uh, of course, fiction's the, the bag here. But I have to always put in a pitch for uh, nonfiction in one case, which is um, there's never unprepared written by uh, – I'm, I'm a writer for Gnome Stew, but Gnome Stew has engine publishing. And before I would ever become a staff member um, – Walt C, because I can't say his last name. It's really long and hard. <laughs> and, uh, um, and Phil Vecchio wrote Never Unprepared. And it's a really cool take on looking at kind of a project management standpoint of like you either being a GM or being someone who creates things, finding like when your energy levels peak, when you're most creative, building a schedule as we get busier with our adult lives that like fits your specific needs. Like, you know, just taking an approach that we don't, a lot of us just kind of, you know, meander through it and hope that we find a path that works for us. Uh, but I found that book kind of life-changing as I was like, man, I don't know, I'm trying to stay up late to write stuff or to prepare for my games. And I'm just one of those people, if I stay up late, I'm just fighting myself because I want to sleep. But like at 10 a.m. to like 11.30, I need to be creative because like all my juices are there. doesn't matter what day of the week it is. I'm wide awake. I'm ready. So it's just, that's my pitch for a non nonfiction. Uh, fiction is really hard because I think so much it, it is something special to each, you know, like each person. Um, and I think things like genre and character types or like what we're going to see with Amaro, like being able to see yourself in the fiction is so important because each one speaks kind of specially to you. Um, you know, I mean, obviously I could say titles like, you know, the once and future King, um, I know a lot of people would mention, uh, you know, obviously Tolkien and, you know, the, the classics for role-playing game people. But um, it is really neat if you've been absorbing stories like King Arthur forever. If you haven't actually read the material, it's a, it's a strong thing for you to see because it's more than just kind of like the trope or summary in your head. And I, I'm really excited when we get to talk about tomorrow because I felt like I never gave Conan enough appreci appreciation. And this is not Conan. 
but it makes me want to go back and read more than a short story here or there because I I got so much out of this book that I felt like I just overlooked what like fantasy could be in like maybe a barbarian mm-hmm. sense. You know, yeah. I just always overlooked it like it maybe I don't want to say it's unintelligent, you know, but I it just I don't know. I was I just did that, right? Like I can't be that complicated. And Amaro just so widened my eyes right. to so the possibilities. away a lot of like, uh, you know, it's like when you, you can keep on painting a table over and over again, but at some point you got to strip the paint if you yes. actually want the table to look nice. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and it's, it's hard for us to separate the modern day idea of the barbarian away from the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan. Like I'm, sure, I'm a total victim of that, I imagine, right? We all <laughs> All are. the action stars of the 80s and 90s, I grew up on that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, Hoy, um, you are taking over the Hygaxian Word of the Day segment. I can't wait. I am what is today. it? <laughs> I am today. It's, it's the one that's used the most. Okay, here we go. Aramia. Aramia, which means criminal, bandit, pirate. It's the name of the, it's how they refer to the band of bandits and cutthroats that uh, Imaro falls in with. It's a, it's a Swahili word. But I also recognize it because its its root is haram in Arabic, which uh, Swahili is uh, a meeting of the African languages with the Arabian traders on the east coast of Africa. So uh, there it is, haramia. Hoy, I, I really think something that's remarkable is that I, I've heard him describe, Mr. Sanders describe, you know, that term so many times. But as soon as you said it, now looking back on the book in hindsight, I heard family, which is just such a weird juxtaposition of the word, right? Like. But it makes sense. It makes total sense given what's going journey. on in the book. Yeah. And, yeah. and we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. first of all, which editions are we all working with? I've got the 2014 ebook from Sword and Soul Media. It's got the uh, Machindo Kumba cover. Yeah, wait for it. It's got, oh, cool. um, yeah, Amaro hanging out with uh, Tanisha. Um, they're both looking very strapping. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I'm working with. What are you working with, Hoy? I've got the Nightshade trade paperback, uh, but I believe it's actually POD, print on demand, because my copy, again, is printed on the 9th of September, 2020. So, <laughs> 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 uh, but it's got a very nice uh, Vince Evans cover of uh, Amaro fighting the Turkanas. Nice. How about you, Pete? I believe I have exactly the same copy, because I definitely have the same cover. Yep. It looks like the same build. Um, it says, yeah, 2006, but... There's probably a page. You being uh, probably a better book connoisseur than I. (laughs) It tells, yeah, February 13, 2021. There you go. Fresh (laughs) off the presses. But it's pretty high quality, though. I have to say, for print on demand, it's very high quality. Perfect. So now we can head on over to the library. Pete, what did you think of Amaro? You know, when you reached out to me about being on the show, I was like, Okay, well, let, let's take a look at what the book is because, you know, I read so many role-playing games and it's like, I don't always take enough breaks for fiction. I When I look, took a look at the book, I, I was like, this sounds interesting. And uh, yeah, I was just really, really taken in. Um, I, I know we mentioned, uh, or sorry, we mentioned it before the episode started, but there were words, there was terminology that at first was a little jarring which Mm -hmm. I I found interesting game related. We can talk about later. It's like new settings, right? Like Mm -hmm. we got to talk about what they call home and what are like their natural instincts and what do they call the spear and the sword and the sorcerer and the chieftain. And and it was really masterfully done. 
because he knew how to, Saunders knew how to repeat himself without being overly repetitive um, and to do it a couple, three times. But he, uh, I think, very strongly used the terminology throughout. You know, he didn't really waver. And, uh, you know, in the first chunk, I was like, oh, wow, like, am I going to remember these? I hope I can hold on to these, you know? And then uh, it was really charming by the end uh, to know these, knew the secret language, you know? And I like how that also extended into um, like the names of like the, the, like how he would talk about the, the leopard and the lion. And they had these very specific names. And it was almost like they were like names of like these like gods or spirits or something. Um, And it was really cool how like they had these like very specific identities and how like I forget the exact words that they would use, but like whatever the word was for cheetah, they would just be like, and then the blank, you know, does this. But the way they talk about it, it sounds like they're talking about like some person. Yeah, Chewy was the leopard, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, Chewy the leopard. I mean, yeah. and, and it's it becomes archetypal, right? It's in the same way that maybe um, uh, in Native Americans sometimes refer to uh, like the know, raven and the, the raven, coyote. Exactly. So the leopard is this, right? All yeah. leopards, they're individual leopards, but all leopards are leopard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like <laughs> they, they're one shared soul. Right. right. Like yeah. they're, they're all a part of one kin. They have similarities. It's like shamanic, a totem. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love, you know, again, a topic to talk about later possibly is that uh, that's like some of my favorite medieval fantasy. When we talk about role playing games, I love in games like maybe the riddle of steel when we can really make mythology of like one monster. You know, I, I don't I don't necessarily want it to be like, let's walk into the goblin horde and slice and dice and they have no yeah. names and they're unimportant. But I love when we can have recreate like the troll, you know, like the, the battle where we have to find the fire and we have to learn how to deal with a thing that just regenerates. And we fight it in this, the dark of night under, you know, stormy conditions and we're just beaten and battered and the thing's winning the war of attrition and it's nasty and devour it. You know, you just see it leveling armies. And what I loved is like you said, they made the jaguar. They made the panther. They made the lion. They made the you know, mm-hmm. right, right. They, they have meaning. Right? Monsters them. have to have meaning, right? Yeah, they spoke yeah, of them a- like that. You know, we can have a session about each one. They're pivotal. They're villainous. You know, I really like that sense of wonder that Charles R. Saunders brings to his writing too. Where something like the crocodile, which Amaro had never encountered before, the crocodile, although not as like terrifying as like the river demons. There, like he spends like basically just as much time describing this one creature that he's never seen before as this other creature he's never seen before. One is a crocodile, and one are these like supernatural river demons. Um, but it's but it all kind of also falls into the category of things that he did not experience while living on the tam- tambour, tamburari. Yeah, tamburari. Yeah, to really give us a sense of like you know we just think oh Africa is a spot on the map. It's all the same thing. Right. And it's not right. I mean, he's, yeah. he's from the Savannah. He's never seen the rainforest, the jungle, the coasts, the mountains. And, and <laughs> to realize that even I mean, we could fit the entire continent of the United States, like what, three or four times into the continent of Africa or more. I mean, that's how bad my geography sure. is. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And of course, like the way that um, map projections are, it makes Africa look a lot smaller than it actually is. Africa is massive. Yeah, that's really Um, funny. I'm glad you mentioned that, right? Like that all of our maps are wrong. (laughs) Yeah. If you you look at a globe, looking at a globe will give you an accurate sense of the scope and size of Africa. But yeah, Africa is massive. But because it's in the middle of that, of the, the map projection, everything in the middle looks way smaller. Did both of you feel the same that it felt like 
a second book started when he left. The, was yes, it the Tambouré? Yeah. Is that what we yeah. call it? Yeah. Um, I, I was really stunned because it was, again, I, I'm so used to maybe things like the Dresden Files that kind of like are building one story over the course of the entire book. And this was more of a collection of short stories put together in a, a an order that made sense as, as, as a book. Um, but I, I just remember being like, what? Like everything you've built to this point, everything that's happened so far, and now we're starting anew. And it was so weird for me as a reader, just because I was so un- unprepared for that. Because I'm like, this is book two. We're in book two and book one. <laughs> did, did either of you feel that way? Or I don't remember if it was halfway through or a third of the way through. Yeah, it's like just about, just like a third to half. Yeah, you're right. Um, it is, I guess, pointing to how epic this is, right? This is, this is, yeah. um, this is the very beginning of his journey, right? If, if, uh, you know, I like how they use this. He talked about uh, rains, right? It's not, it's no years, it's rains. Yeah, but so cool. Imaro is probably what eighteen or nineteen as he strikes out on his own, or you know, he's cast out from his people or the people who never accepted him, the Eliasi, who are sort of stand-ins for the Maasai, not one for one, but they're sort, you know. Um, and so it gives us a whole, again, a different sense of like, again, scale, how people think about time and all that in the book. And it's just like upending all of our assumptions. And, and I thought it was interesting that, um, that yeah, by about a third of the way through, half of the way through, we have that scene where Amaro and Chitendi, I believe that's his name, like have their face off and he ends up killing Chitende who's the guy who is, of course, responsible for everything that has happened to him in his life and the reason why his why his mother had to leave the tribe, the reason why she was cast out and the reason why he's an outcast. And when that happened, it seemed as though every single plot point that we had been developing, except the mystery of who is Amaro's father, was wrapped up in that moment. And I, too, was like, oh, weird. Like, and I, and I had to check because I'm like, wait, does this does this ebook version I have accident? Like, does this contain more than one version? Like, the, am I accidentally going into book two? No, I'm not going to book two. But um, what's interesting is prior to these recordings, we also sit down and chat with our patrons and have a patron book club. And a bunch of our patrons were saying that they felt that like once it hit that point, that the story lost a lot of speed for them and a lot of traction. I personally did not feel that way. I loved all of the stuff with the Haramia and with the river folk. I was just completely engrossed in the the drama the entire way through. Um, what was your experience with that, Hoy? Um, I, I uh, quite enjoyed it. And I think because I sort of recognized what he was trying to do, uh, Charles R. Saunders, which was that he is basically telling uh, an origin story, right? This is this is uh, Imaro's secret origin story. So... It needs to have that arc, right? He has to leave. It's not even a friendly home. It's ne- it was never a safe home for him, but a hero has to leave home, right? To, to, uh, but there is no community for him to go back to. And uh, Pete, I think he was fun- it's, it's interesting that the word you really focused on was family, right? He's looking for a home, a place. So he's a little different than your typical sword and sorcery character because he's not a loner by choice, mm-hmm. right? He's always looking for that community, that family, but he's also very bad for those communities and families that he tries to get himself adopted yeah. into um and pete i'm actually interested because since you mentioned this off the cuff i'm going to dig into this because you mentioned being an only child what was a resonance for you looking at this stuff now at a Mara situation as an oh you know, yeah 
Yeah. So I, I, I just wanted to mention something before we touch on that, because I think that's the next big broad topic I would love for us to explore at least was that I think him with Chitendu and then going to the Haramiya, it was almost like a Kirkman twist, right? Like, um, it was a very modern day sort of Game of Thrones or Walking Dead twist. It was like they knew uh, Saunders wrote in a way that he knew what we expected of the genre, right? And he led us down a path to what we would expect to be completion. And he used that against us when he flipped it on the script and we were like, oh, we're still going. Oh, wow. What's going on still? We barely, whoa, you know, and I, I thought it was, it's kind of novel because I mean, not that, you know, Kirkman or you know, like uh, or George R. R. Martin started these things, but it's so much more popular in today's media yeah. that like we build stuff like Invincible that like breaks superhero tropes because they're, they're playing to a niche audience that knows how a superhero story is supposed to go. So, um, Cho- uh, Hoy, sorry, I was almost said Choi, I'm so sorry. Um, Hoy, you mentioned the only child thing and I, this is something that's very interesting to me because when you pr- frame it like that, I, I was really what the book really hit me in moments and it really hit me strong at, at almost all these climactic moments turned to chapter ends because they always had this strong tie in, um, especially the ending, but I'm going to skip that for now. Um, you know, when he looked at his tribe, when they finally accepted him after everything that happened and he said to himself, I I can't live like that. I can't be what you want me to be. Um, Which, you know, in part still felt kind of stubborn maybe, right? Like you're like, come on, like we all got to eat a little crow, (laughs) but but, I mean, he ate a lot of crow in his defense. He ate crow every day, every moment of his life since he was five, when his mom left him, you know, his only parent. Um, But yeah, yeah, it, it, it struck such a chord. And I felt like a person that from when a young age, as a person who was like, I don't know, creative and artistic and um, interested in maybe role-playing games and niche hobbies and things, I always felt like I did not have my own people. So yeah, I, I did feel very strongly to that. And that theme ties almost every major bookend uh, in 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 the journey of Amaro in this first book, mm-hmm. and uh, that made at the ending of each chapter is what I was calling them beyond, before this um, very powerful for me. So I I can't speak to the audience or you two, but I'm very curious if you two felt that way because that's one of the things I didn't expect that gave me a deeper feeling to the appreciation to the story mm-hmm. that really blew me away. As it wasn't like yeah I won the day again. It was right, like. Right. Let's talk about family and identity and how this all, what this all means in our life's perspective. And then the next journey starts, you know? And you were mentioning, you know, being, uh, you know, the hobby or, and I think, you know, I mean, we know from the introduction of the book of the copies that we have, Pete, that, you know, and the, and the uh, afterward that Charles Saunders was a, a real fan of all this genre fiction, but he also could see that it wasn't for him. Right, because he's a black man growing up in the middle yeah. of the twentieth century and is reading all the stuff that has, frankly, very racist overtones. Right, yeah, yeah. and how can he be belong in this thing which doesn't want him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and I, I thought that I, was know, interesting too. How we explore that in the um, 
how at the end when he is cast out from the Haramia that he is in, that he is has been leading, and then he says that I have been cast out by the outcasts, and it's interesting because it also seems like perhaps that was Saunders' experience. Like maybe he felt like in the world of like fantasy and science fiction, um, like literature, that's where the outcasts went, and even he wasn't really welcomed amongst the outcasts. I. I don't know if either of you looked any more into Mr. Saunders, but uh, it's just, uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. Um, right. Yeah. Just like maybe finding, you know, like there's all these great artists that are found, you know, what they call it posthumously, right? Like, yeah, posthumously. <laughs> unfortunately. And he uh, he passed away last year. Uh, it looks mm-hmm. like somewhere around May or June. And uh, yeah. they, supposedly in Nova Scotia, they, um, and of course, this is like Wikipedia and New York Times. There's a couple articles that l- have led me down the road. And he had no next of kin. So there was a GoFundMe, uh, which like a dozen plus people did a Zoom call of people that were like from his college to his professional days throughout his 70, 73 years of life that came together and said, he needs a headstone. Um, and it was just so uh, kind of sad because I just felt so strongly about the book and like how good it was. And like you said, just to be so overlooked for so long. And then the timeliness of the material, especially being from an African-American, you know, like how it just was like, wow, and stunning mm-hmm. and just mind blowing. And then we talk about it. So like I said, again, Jeff, thank you. And Hoy, thank you. Cause this was like a real delight, you know, and it was, I never would have read or found this otherwise. Yeah, and I think it would be a really easy misconception for people to think that the only reason people are interested in Amaro is because of the fact that it was written by a black man with a black character. And people are like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like, okay, so somebody wrote, you know, this, a black guy wrote about a black character. I guess we should read it. Like, it's it's not even that. Like, this is just like a phenomenal story with so much um, heart and um, and authenticity. Have either of you read uh, Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart? I have not. No, unfortunately, no. It's a fantastic story, and it's in no way speculative fiction. Um, but it it takes place in Africa, like right around the time that it's being colonized, and like it starts off with this tribe that's pre-colonial, and then they move through the like the the, the colonialization of this tribe. But what's interesting is this book really felt to me like things fall apart meets Conan the Barbarian, which seems like two completely <laughs> like incongruous things. Um, yeah. But it somehow worked really well. And it also, in the same way that, um, Pete, have you read any of the Elric stories by Malcolm Moorcock? You know, I have, but uh, only one of the books and I didn't finish it, but I, I really adored it. I just uh, still have it and always said I was going to finish it. I wish I could tell you which one it was offhand. But. That, that's fine. So Elric is obviously not Conan. Omaro is obviously yeah. not Conan. But they are both obviously conversations with Conan and exist almost in response to Conan. Um, but what's also interesting to me is all these different tropes that we see explored in Amaro. And I, I, I'm hesitant to say it, but it almost seems like almost Harry Potter style tropes where it's like we've got this abused and neglected chosen one where like there's this great bad that's obsessed with him. Uh, so it's also interesting that we're seeing lots of kind of mythological and heroic uh, tropes kind of being explored through the Amaro character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's interesting because it's not wish fulfillment, right? Because he's not amazing and perfect right he's got all this rage and he is bad for the people that are around him even if it's unintentional um he is um you know again it's that 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 looking for a place to belong 
but also once he gets there, not necessarily knowing how to do the best for it or take the best from it. You know, <laughs> like when he comes to yeah. the Tumbe people, he can't adopt to their lifestyle, even though it's paradisical compared to what he came from. <laughs> right. And even though he is the biggest, strongest, toughest, best fighter <laughs> around, when things go really south and he loses people that he cares about and he loses people that he was supposed to be protecting, or even if it's like somebody like his cow, you know, like he had this really intense connection with uh, with Kulu, which was his tribe's language, uh, the the word for friend in his tribe's language. And that was like the cow that he was responsible for keeping track of. When that cow died, it was a really um, intense moment for Amaro. And frequently uh, throughout the story, we have these moments where although Amaro has like been successful in combat, he's kind of left feeling like feeling the the old injuries of that like wounded, abandoned child. Mm-hmm. Like that inner child, like I had to say inner child, but, but like but like that inner child inside of Amaro is like something that Amaro keeps going back to. Right. And it's interesting because you had mentioned this, uh, both of you had mentioned, oh, this is breakpoint at the third of the way through, but it's not really a breakpoint. It's only geographical breakpoint because he carries himself through to the next stage, still having all those burdens that he had from the first, you know, all along, right? And, and with new burdens along the way. And then some joys like meeting Tanisha and, and sort of like meeting equals and having and, and you know, for the first time in the, in the Haramiya um, and with the Imtumbe tribe. And so, but always, I guess you say there's lurking in the background that the, the hurt that he grew up with, you know. Yeah, I, I, it was it, it's it's so sad when you look now having finished, you know, you complete the work and you just you look back on it and. You know, Amaro, sa- Amaro says in moments like, you know, or he has recognition that bad things seem to happen to the people that he cares about. And mm-hmm. that in itself is a bit of a trope for us because we know it's like the hero's journey. That always happens, right? Like, especially if you're the invincible one, right? You go after this superhero's girlfriend or a boyfriend or partner or mom or dad, you know, um, that's their weakness. Um, so it was just, uh, unfortunately, a self-fulfilling prophecy because it did never went away, like you said. And throughout the end, there's always more he can lose. Although one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting was that the only person he trusted with his with the full secret of who he is and the stakes that he's up against is Tanisha. And ultimately, although Tanisha is kidnapped in the end and he has to cross the river to go to go get her, ultimately she's the only person who doesn't reject him. So it's the only person who really knows the truth, who is the only person who's also really accepting him. So that also potentially has this message that he's also kind of setting himself up for failure by keeping so much of himself to himself. Right. And, and that's potentially sort of, potentially. And that's sort of playing against those sort of tropes of the the laconic uh, cowboy or sword, you know, mm-hmm. sword and sorcery character. It's, it's playing against it a little bit to a certain yeah. extent. Um, which again, I think is an interesting conversation um, with the you know precedents in the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to go back because I, I almost feel like maybe we don't if we wash over it, it doesn't give it justice. But yeah, like so there there was like the bookend with Chitendu and uh, Amaro looking at the tribe and being like, I, I can't, and then going off to a faraway land beyond understanding, really, and then finding all of this love and endearment and being surrounded and overwhelmed completely, uh, not able to speak the language and learn it fast enough, not knowing if 
he wanted to, you know, because it was like too weird and too much. And then it finally started seeping, seeing like it was going to be a thing. And then, mm-hmm. of course, and it was, it's so funny that they, when they kidnap Morrow and they take the, uh, my, my copy said, uh, I think it's Afu, Afua or Afua. Yeah, um, Afua. In our introduction, I think that was what they were talking about, the giant of the slave kings. It was something big that Saunders changed, uh, supposedly from the original parts, because he wasn't comfortable with the connotations, uh, given that the time change, right? Like the years that have come by. Um, he, uh, it, it's just like, it was like to be kidnapped like that and be one of two things kidnapped. It just seemed like the worst roll of the dice. And then how they, the whole tribe could then be like, well, clearly there's a connection. Because it's just too much of a coincidence to not be a connection. And the whole time, I'm just like, my heart's breaking again, you know, because you're like, of course, there's no way, like, you would not make that connection and that it doesn't look like he's the worst. And then to be given the choice, like, of slavery and then not slavery. But I love that Saunders inserts his people had no concept of slavery. They had no understanding. They had to tell him what slavery was. And he said, oh, yeah, well, forget that. I'll take this. <laughs> Who's the biggest guy you got? Yeah, I'll take all the whippings. Uh, yeah. Well, like we, Muto, we, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We live free or die. That's that's my people. So, yeah, yeah, that's not even a question. But I never could have imagined that he would then take in family as thieves, like rogues, right? Like the, like he was such as the, the iconic warrior, right? Um yeah, so the juxtaposition that just kept having these transitions was just uh, just gave me the feels over and over again that just kept me going. I got to keep reading. I got to keep reading. Right. Yeah, right. Another interesting um, point in there is you know in the Robert E. Howard, it's always talking about how the barbarian is always uh, sort of in a state of grace and naturally superior to anything that civilization has to offer. Uh, Imaro, in terms of his prowess, is far outmatched, but they're not saying that culturally and you see from where he grew up that it's culturally it's not superior uh in any way you know i mean there's there's an interesting conversation between like these are these different cultures you know these different aspects that can be taken uh jeff you look like you have a thought that you want to i i do you know i feel like oftentimes with uh for example with fritz leiber i feel like there is this idea that um culture actually um in the culture versus barbarism, in the city versus the country, with Fritz Leiber, culture and the city is absolutely superior. With Robert E. Howard, barbarism and the wild is absolutely superior. With Amaro, I don't think it's a battle. I don't think it's a competition. Right. I feel like different cultures are just that. They're different. Right. And I, I feel like we see that again and again as Amaro is moving through this world. You know, he comes from a warfaring people. And to them, murdering the next tribe over isn't an evil thing. That is what you do to protect yourself. So at first, when he joins the river folk and he sees that they're just dancing and having fun, he's like, <laughs> who are these weaklings who are just like living this like extravagant lifestyle? But then he discovers like, no, like my judgments against them are, are and this is just how they live. And the same thing with like, when he joins the Haramia, and the same thing when he comes to this tribe that he's been that he and his people have been framed as having murdered um, or, or wiping out their, their numbers and kidnapping folks. But they all have these very different cultures, 
but there's no value judgment assigned to them. Right, right. And actually, even one more point on them, him coming from a warrior culture, even then there are norms because you just, you just mentioned that village that was destroyed by, uh, you know, under a false ruse by the soldiers that are trying to capture his brigand band, right? That they consider, even though they're brigands, they would consider inconceivable just to murder a village for no reason. You, know, yeah. you have to raid for a reason, right? Yeah. Um, and so there, there are norms even in a, a warrior society, right? And then that this is almost like Charles Saunders pointing at like colonial warfare that was being raged, the proxy warfare that was happening in Africa with, you know, the war in Angola or similar things that were happening in Southeast Asia and Indonesia and in Vietnam at the time, right? Like, oh, we we'll had to burn the village in order to save it, or we're going to, we're going to turn the people of the countryside against these, against the Viet Cong by, you know, you know, that kind of thing, burning the village. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is Saunders being very cognizant of, of the things that are happening and bringing it into the fiction, but in a way that seems very natural. Pete, I've got a question for you. So let's say you walk away from having read this really inspired to play like an African inspired Dungeons and Dragons style game. In your mind, um, I don't know your background, but as I'm assuming you're not of African descent in any way. Are you? No, not that I know you're, of. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I know that Hoy and I are not either. Um, if you were interested in doing something that was Africa inspired, how would you go about doing that as somebody who is not of African descent? <laughs> well, it's funny you said that because clearly what I would do at this point, if, if that was the case, it would be inspired by Himara. So it probably would be very uh, derivative. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't find that being any injustice, right? It's just like being into the Dresden files or something and being like, I want to run that game and finding a system and, you know, slapping it on or Harry Potter. Um, because what a good book does in this way is it gives me all of this mind candy. Like I, I, I've seen the savannas, you know, like I, I understand the people and, and ways of like the ritualistic, the, 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 it's sad when I think of like fallout, the video game or something about like how their tribes got out of the vault and like they had ordeals to, to be the one, the chosen one. And like, this was so much more realistic and built to it. And like lives were led to have the one moment, which, uh, uh, Hoy, do you know how to say it? Is that like the Oya old Hayamo? I, I don't know how that, the term, so, so but it was the like of hunting down the lion. Yeah. 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 Uh, fighting Nagatan, you know, and yeah. it just it gave like it Ohe, all the Hagadishi or something, yeah. uh, something yeah. like that. I mean, they're it very much based on the yeah, actual Maasai. Oh, yeah, the Maasai. The Omayo. Yeah. The Omayo. Omayo. Yeah. Thank you. That's, yeah. yeah. It yeah. just gave it all majesty, you know? And I, I think I could do it a lot more justice as a game master because I could p- put the players more into an environment with their, you know, using their senses to make them feel a little bit more of what that means. When before not understanding it, I would have done a cliche job. Um, now, as a game master, which system would you want to use for an Amaro-inspired game? Uh, well, okay, so there, there's a handful. Clearly, this is a great, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, because it, it's got like the leveling, the hero building, and so on. But when I usually would think of uh, Dungeons and Dragons these days, I look at mazes. So I look at Polymorph. Um, Polymorph is a really cool kind of a little bit of a throwback, but it's a rules light uh, system. And mazes was kind of meant to hit that OSR of the D&D feel, so like old school D&D. But like uh, every character kind of has like a, a certain die that kind of represents most of their stats. The only thing they roll. 
And on the right of the, the right side of their sheet, it says like, you know, there's a range for every kind of action, which is kind of like the equivalent of like, if they're fast or dexterous, if they're strong, if they're durable, or if they're uh, intelligent. And if you have a D4, you have a really good chance of rolling in the intelligent range, which is like within the one through three or something. But you're almost never going to hit like the eight because you have to roll the four and re-roll it to get the eight. So it's a really neat rule slide, pretty cool, uh, easy to grok system um, that would give me that feel because I, I naturally lean towards like one shots or shorter stories. So I wouldn't worry about the story progression being a campaign progression because mm-hmm. that would be the short side of that would be that would be um, the progression isn't something that would be as glorious as like leveling, which plays to campaign, you know, like when yeah. you can really build over time because I don't know about you, but you know, Dungeons and Dragons history, right? Like I, one of the things that always bit me in the butt was like, I finally got to fourth level and then we started over again, you know, like it's, we never get there. So I, I much more like to have my stories be like, all right, we start at fifth, right? Equivalent, right? Like, let's start in the action. Um, if we want to be epic level characters, let's start within reach, right? Like so that it happens or let's start there, right? So let's tell that story. Do you feel like Amara was leveling up through this adventure? That's a really good question because um, – you could argue that he wasn't. Um, in some ways, it was very interesting that as he went to new places, you kind of wonder when Saunders is going to bring back more of like the, I think it's Ilyasi, um, because mm-hmm. clearly members of his tribe, uh, while he was you know, head and shoulders above them, it was only head and shoulders. Like three of them would hit him with a spear button. He's unconscious, right? And it always a kid then, but um, clearly, you know, it was a lot more of taking one superpowered member of it, like a superhero race and putting him in the rest of the world. It was more of what was going on than necessarily his um, him getting stronger or faster or smarter. Though you could, and gosh, even it's hard to say, like his, his tactics are so much. We talk about the tactics at the end, but they're just things he was taught. So it's really, really hard to say, honestly. Right. One thing that I would really want to think about really carefully if I wanted to really kind of encapsulate the feeling that I got from Amara was I'd want to take a really careful look at the magic system of whatever kind of game I was running. Because one thing that was really cool about this is like, yes, there are people who are not evil, who do not have pacts with demons, who are practicing magic. But that magic, as far as we've seen so far at least, is nowhere near as powerful. And when I forget her name, I think it was like an issue when she was talking about how um, she has like, like she can cast a spell to protect the warriors, but it's going to take her a long time to do it. So it's slow and nowhere near as powerful. However, if you want that good stuff, then you got to <laughs> be making packs with demons, but in doing so it is guaranteed that your body is going to start morphing and you're going to start becoming covered in wriggly bits and you're going to have elephantine arms and legs that go down to graceful little hands that you have to like cover in big robes. Um, And that's really interesting. And I, and I would have to make room for that kind of experience in the rule set. I Mm. I know I mentioned riddle steel in the beginning. That's an oldie favorite of like the, uh, what do they call that? The, uh, like the Forge days, right? Like the early 2000s. But um, they have a magic system that was kind of meant to emulate like people like Merlin. And it, it does encapsulate, like you were saying, like, um, you know, most of the spells you'll make, like the players will make. Um, and the, the trick with their spell system is that like the cost of casting spells is the less prepared you are, the more you'll age. 
So I, I could easily see how that could be uh, tied into these demonic packs where the age mm-hmm. doesn't matter, but it grows into these, you know, these dark twists of your body. Uh, um, and it would give you all that freedom, though. I'm curious of like the leveling of power, because the one downside is that that system, um, all magic is like Merlin level up uh, yeah. with the potential, because you could, if you don't care if you age 20 years in one spell, <laughs> you can pull it off. But, you know, and it was a comical thing in the way that like your beard, you would instantly, you would be all gray and long and the hair and the things would happen. Amazing. Right, right. right. Well, it's clear, for example, Angulu, who was the original um, sort of uh, wizard for the Haramiya, uh, he had originally uh, feared the demons and he would only practice sort of like the limited magic that he had. And, and that's why in, he tried to do a traffic a little bit in black magic and was cast out from the cities. But later, after uh, Imaro takes over the Haramiya, he goes on a walkabout, so to speak, and comes back much more powerful and evil. And he has now, in DCC terms, taken on a patron, right? <laughs> right. Um, and with all that, all the, and he did level up, right? But in a very bad way. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and there's got to be a game that has that. I just don't know it, right? Like, I, there, there's clearly a game that has, like, cool twists and demonic, you know, paths well, for magic. Yeah. Like, I, like, Ravenloft comes to mind, but, like, that's that's just barely the toes dipping in, right? Like, like of what you would need to know. But it, it's so neat to think about because uh, clearly there's plenty of games that have demonic, ca- you know, demonic packs for magic. It just, there's yeah. got to be the game out there. We just don't know what it is. Well, Dungeon Crawl Classics, I mean, very much like whenever you cast a spell, there's a chance that it's going to corrupt you. And you can make packs with entities to get more powerful magics. But if that goes awry, you can get corruption from those from those entities as well. So that might be a way to go. But with Dungeon Crawl Classics, the chance that that's going to happen is if you roll a natural one when you're casting your spell. And if you end up rolling corruption on the next table that you roll on. So it's like anywhere from a one to a five percent chance it'll happen each time you cast a spell. Clearly, in this world, the percentage chance that it's going to happen is like a hundred percent. You're going to be corrupted by this magic, so you would want to tweak that a little bit. But yeah, <laughs> right, right. It may just be like just by not even the casting the spell, but just by the, the sheer fact of just leveling up. You each time yeah. you level up, you get this corruption. You know. Oh, that's a great idea too. You know. Now, Pete, while you're while you're reading this, was there any? monster or item or idea or set piece or character that you're just like, this is fun. I would love to steal this and put this into one of my games. Hmm. Uh, you know, I was going to say, what well, we go to Hoy. Let me think about that. Cause that's a good question. I'm sure there's plenty. Um, you know, or if I go back, honestly, we may have just talked about it. Uh, you know, Chitendu, when Chitendu becomes apparent, like you said, uh, it, it was a twist darker than I expected and more horrible than I expected, uh, especially descriptively. Right. And um, especially tied again, to the death of, uh, of his first love too. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, and, and when I read it, I was like, uh, they're not going to, that's not for real. That's an illusion. And then nope. it was like, no. And it haunts him forever. And it was yep. such a horrifying because I just didn't expect the fiction of the time period and of to the, really uh, the material go to go there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, another moment where it really, it took me further than I expected sort of like the genre to go. And it then grabbed me further and pulled me in deeper. Like I was like, Oh my God, so this can happen. What else can happen? Yeah. It, it's, it's showing you that there are very real stakes here. 
And although you think that Chitendu is the big bad of this series, nope, he's dead a third of the way through. So not only is the is the big bad not who you think it is, um, there are very real stakes to what's happening in this person's world. And the description, you know, descriptions like like that's the thing that goes into that I would pull into a different game was just how darkly twisted they were. Usually in you know Dungeons and Dragons we say oh it's twisted and deformed and we just use a couple words right but you'd almost want to go into the detail like you like you said the elongated features the hand that looks like a bobble on top of the cloaked body which just begs the whole time of like what's going on under there and like the sticks for arms and the hands and it's just boogeyman horror nightmare stuff you know um, that built everyone and we know there's more. You know, like, <laughs> what is still to come? Jesus. And Hoy, what do you want to steal? Um, I mean, I think the, the what Pete is talking about, the use of cosmic horror, but I think another thing that you brought up in the book club, Jeff, is the effective use of illusion. Mm. Uh, you know, how to really, you know, especially I think it's, in my copy, it's page 156 and 157, when they said the horror in the hills, horror in the Black Hill story, you know, and he's seeing the three the four people that he'd already killed, that they've come back and he's not sure if they're zombies or if they're illusions, you know, and then he's fighting that creature. Um, also, originally when he's fighting the the sort of second of the evil black magicians in the first third that he met, you know, and the guys also turned into a snake and that's also an illusion. Yeah. Um, so the use of illusions... But these are illusions that can kill you. A hundred percent you can die from right. these illusions. Right. So it's describing... So, I mean, if I was running it, I would just literally describe the transformation I have to slip, you know, how do you slip in a very subtle hint that the person's like, oh, this is an illusion, you know, so the person, the player can say, has some agency, says, oh, maybe this is an illusion, right? But but I think uh, Saunders is really, it's not just like, oh, suddenly the character waved their hand and the snakes came out of his hand. No, no, he's like, this is something that's real, um, you know, and it's in this sort of dream time space, which I think is what makes it effective. Um, so, yeah, I would steal that, Um and I would steal the idea, and Jeff, we always talk about this, about you know, making everybody human. So there's all these human cultures that they're running into. It's not an orc, a goblin. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's in- more interesting. Okay, here's this tribe, here's this tribe. And yeah. they're not all one thing, but they have tendencies. Mm-hmm. You know? So I'm interested Absolutely. in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's not like a, one particular thing, but um, in Dungeon Crawl Classics, there's this idea that when your adventurers start, they've never traveled more than 20 miles from their town. And everything that exists out there is just an absolute complete mystery. There's no like giant campaign map and your character knows like which, uh, which nation you're in. It doesn't work like that. You know this 20 mile area and you know nothing beyond that. And although it says that in the text, I've never played or run a Dungeon Crawl Classics adventure or campaign that really felt that way. And it really felt that way in Amaro. Mm-hmm. Like the first time he goes into the woods and it was the first time in his life he didn't see the Tamborere. And like that was such a huge moment for him. And I just thought this story did that so well mm-hmm. that I'm hoping I can walk away from this feeling more inspired to be able to do that aspect better. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about looking at the things like, I mean, we live in the early 21st century. So materially, physically, we're all very comfortable, right? It's putting ourselves in that mindset of being uncomfortable physically and mentally like, wait, this is strange. 
this is new. Yeah. This is weird, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And we are running out of time. Pete, do you have oh, any geez. kind of final thought? <laughs> I know it went by so fast. Pete, do you have any kind of final thoughts about Amaro that you didn't get a chance to express yet? You know, uh, it's really just commentary. Um, Hoy mentioned it, and I just can't stop thinking about the, the you know, when Amaro faces himself, the illusion of himself, mm-hmm. and uh, right after he faces the illusion of, like, the four major villains that he kind of faced, the most horrifying people, um, he learns that the only way he can beat his younger, maybe prime version of himself in, in the state that he's in is by finding that anger Mm. that like that fueled him beyond and saunders takes the moment to really spell that out and kind of like hoy mentioned that was one of the moments later in the book that saunders made sure that we didn't forget that for some reason he wanted us to know that amaru above being like an alpha a lion among men was fueled his whole life was being held down told that he was worthless, told that he wasn't good enough, told that he wasn't, he didn't belong. And in that moment to beat an illusion of himself, he had to have that inner strength again to remember everything that led him to where he is, is still what keeps him stronger and gives him that fury and makes him that monster in battle. And I don't know, it's just, it's just worth bringing back to the forefront uh, because it's just such a strong concept. Uh, and it's funny sometimes because we think of anger so negatively in modern society um, mm-hmm. and maybe talking things out and letting it go. But Saunders wanted us to know that more than anything to reinforce it because that was his superpower. Absolutely. And there are very healthy ways of expressing anger. <laughs> and it's important to let yourself be angry, you know, especially if you are somebody who has experienced things that give you a right to be angry. And Amaro has every right to be angry because he has been let down by every group of people he has come in contact with. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Pete, uh, are there any projects that you're working on that you would like our listeners to be aware of? Well, you get a real treat because I know this is in the future too. Um, We, uh, Imagining Games, is producing the... uh, the the role-playing game for an award-winning image comic series called chew um chew was in 2009 to like 2016 it's a food noir uh, about cops crooks cannibals and clairvoyance um so it's a fun twist on uh noir uh that's comical but got a lot of real character and uh kind of like these people who do uh their jobs um, in a world that's alternate but very real to us because it was based on like 2008. We had like the bird flu scare. So in in the world of Chew, um, the bird flu actually kills like 116 million people worldwide. So every, all the countries outlaw chicken and other bird meat. And as you can imagine, it's kind of funny to think about the world without chicken uh, and how that changes things. And uh, it makes the FDA the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world, which is also really funny. And in the comics, like the FBI and the CIA are pretty much gone as the FDA and the USDA are like the powerhouses and kind of above the law. So anyway, 
uh, playtests will be available. You can go to imagininggames.com and you can start looking or awaiting the Kickstarter in October. There'll be games scheduled at Gen Con. So uh, please check all that out. Are there going to be adventures that are um, that are focused on like black market McNuggets? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there will be. There's a, like we've already in playtests. There's already comically in the comics. There's like egg dealers. Like so, you're like in a dark alley, and someone opens the trench coat, and there's just hard boiled eggs. eggs. Um, <laughs> and uh, people run like speakeasies because it's kind of like a prohibition, right? But you they got to know the password, and you go to underground dining facilities where they serve you fried chicken or chicken and waffles. <laughs> Amazing. Right. Yeah, it's it's a real treat. It's it's really funny but it's also something that doesn't hold back its punches and gets can be mm-hmm. dark and gritty so uh, it's a, it's a it's a lot of fun and where can folks find you and your works online uh yeah so the game company is imagining games uh so you can go to imagininggames.com you know it's on facebook uh, i tweet at at vembranner v-e-m-b-r-a-n-o-r but again you can find that link over at the website so you can check out all our other titles like rest in pieces is coming out in the fall uh that's a uh, uh, it's it's a dark comedy about deadbeat roommates who were stuck living with the Grim Reaper. Uh, so <laughs> nice. it's, it's fun one shots that happen like within the span of an hour that you can start in minutes that are really great, especially for bringing new people into the hobby or just a palate cleanser. So very cool. And Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, you can drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And Jeff, how about our Patreon and our new book choices? Yes. So Patreon. So um, we have the results for patron uh, for the patron poll for episode 107. Episode 107 is going to be on Ellen Kushner's Swords Point. We've also got the options that our patrons can vote for for episode 111. And those choices are going to be Glenn Cook's The Black Company, H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, Mercedes' Lackey Burning Water, and A. Merritt's The Metal Monster. So our patrons will be able to vote on either of those four. The poll will be open from the day this episode is posted um, publicly on August 9th, and then it will be available for, uh, for that for that week. Also, our patrons are able to join us for the pre-recording book clubs. So we'd like to give a thank you to those who attended this week's patron book club session. Uh, Demo Saklas, Jeremy Harper, Oliver Brackenberry, Robert Coleman, Dan Alexander, Adam Stiers and Brandon Cruz. Thank you all so much for joining us today. That was a lot of fun. We had a full Brady Bunch, the full house. <laughs> yep, yep. We, we max it out when we're at the nine by nine grid on Zoom. <laughs> and that's where we were today. <laughs> and um, I would also like to give a shout out to some of our other patrons. So thank you to Matt Hildebrand, Robert Stites, Matt Richards, Derek Varn, Lucio Nothlich Pimentel, Ian Little, Kurt Hockenberry, Justin Hamilton, and Joseph Hoopman. You all rock. Thank you all so much for your support. It means a lot to us. And if you would like to show your support, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. Our next two episodes, episode 102, will be on Michael Shea's Nift the Lean. And episode 103 will be on Mervyn Peak's Titus Groan. Pete, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, Pete, it was a total treat. It was so wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. This has been a really fun episode. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. Read on.
The library is closed.